Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in chapter 7 of the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus receives an invitation to have dinner with a Pharisee and encounters an unlikely visitor. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our Journey in the Word. Now, if you have ever read this account and wondered, what's this woman doing? Where'd she come from? Why is she at the dinner? Now you know. Now you know. Simon was permitting and following a common custom of the day at dinners like this that would, where he would have opened the doors to the poor to come in. And she shows up. She shows up. Now, of course, you can't get away from the question that you need to think about here is, you know, was Simon simply honoring a custom that he routinely followed? Was this something he always did? Or was there an ulterior motive to what he was doing? Could it possibly be that this Pharisee had opened his doors to the dinner like this, not because he routinely did this, even though it was custom, but maybe he didn't always do this. I mean, just the the attitude he holds toward her as a sinner tells you that this wasn't something he liked doing. And, and, and at the same time, maybe really what was happening is he just wanted to do it so it could be eyewash for this particular dinner. In other words, while, again, this passage gives us no clear answer to this question, it's highly likely that this was a staged event. Not that he had staged this woman, but he had opened the doors as a staged event that was designed to impress Jesus with just how generous and pious, you know, he really is. Look how he cares for the poor so that, you know, he kind of gives that persona to Jesus. And that was certainly... I don't think it's a stretch to say that certainly would fit the profile of the Pharisees in general, because that's the kind of stuff they did. They did all kinds of stuff to draw attention to their self-righteousness, to their piety, so everybody would see. And Jesus had a lot to say about that kind of stuff, didn't he? I mean, just think about in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, where Jesus rebukes. He says this to the crowds, clearly with the Pharisees standing right nearby listening, but he's not looking at them. He's looking at the crowds. And he says in Matthew 6 and verse 1, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly." Doesn't that fit this whole passage potentially with what may be happening? Could be. You know, in this situation, again, we don't know for certain that this Pharisee was following the custom in order to impress Jesus or not, but but the custom itself had become hypocritical because with many people it became a way of self-justifying themselves spiritually in their own eyes and in the eyes of others. Look at how I care for the poor. Look at how, how, how I, I have a heart for those in need. Look at how much I'm doing for them. I even open my doors so they can come in as the custom is and be fed, you see? Great, great. 
Glad you're doing that, Mr. Pharisee. Glad you're doing that, Mr. Believer, that you're caring for the poor. Glad you're doing that if you sincerely care about them. If you sincerely care about them. But is that really your motive? Is it really your motive? You know, there are a lot of things that we can fall into the trap of as Christians, even today, you know, that many of us think can be about really caring about, you know, righteous things and about people and and doing things. But in our hearts, even though some of the things we can be doing might seem right, it can be wrong if our motive's wrong. You know, for instance, you can donate clothes to a shelter. You know, you guys can think of a list of these. I'll just give you a few. You can donate clothes to a shelter, but what clothes did you choose to donate? And how did you decide that? You know, did you simply go through the stuff you didn't want anymore? Did you go through things you didn't particularly like? Did you go through the things that were really worn out? Did you even think about what you were giving and why you were doing it? You know, we periodically, and maybe this year would be a great year to do it when things begin to open up again. But, you know, we've done those free yard sales out here, which have ministered to people. We did those when we were in Greencastle. It was great there because we were right on the main street. And we get crowds of people that come. It was always free. We always do things for free here. We've always made a point of doing that. But in the process of doing that, I would tell folks, look, you know, we'll give away whatever you bring in. It isn't like we got a stockpile in the shed. So whatever you bring in, we'll give out. But do us a favor. Don't just bring us your toilet plungers. You know, don't just bring the toilet plungers. Bring something that costs you something, you know, that, that you're willing to part with because of why you want to do that, that you want to bless somebody. Let's bless somebody. Now, it is amazing. We've had some nice stuff out there and some toilet plungers, and people grab the toilet plungers. Go figure. You know, but it's not what's out there. It's why it's out there. You follow what I'm saying? You know, it's the same thing, too. You can donate money to support missionaries. That's great. That's a good work. Missionaries need to be supported. But the question you should be asking yourself is, why am I doing it? And how am I doing it? You know, what's really driving me towards this? Is it really more about me than it is about them? Am I doing that? Do you really care about them? Here's a good one. If you're giving to missionaries, are you praying for those missionaries? Are you praying for them at the same time? Or are you just taking money in an envelope and sending it off? You know, are you praying for them? Uh, do, do you prayerfully consider what they need? Or, or did you just check the block with your donation to them? And, and what about sending money that relieves you of your own heart and your service to the Lord, right? Some people almost give just because it relieves them some in their mind of their own responsibility and what the Lord may be calling them to do in some cases. And here's the real question. When you do that, what does sending that support do in your own heart? Do you derive from it a sense of spiritual self-satisfaction? Ooh, watch out for that. That that sense of, oh, I've just done a good thing. Look at what a good... You know what I'm saying? It can be more subtle than that, but it can sometimes be exactly that in our hearts. Oh, I just, I did a good thing by doing that. I can tell you right now, the motive's wrong. If that's the case, it should never be about spiritual self-satisfaction. None of the services we give, none of the things that we do should be about our spiritual self-satisfaction. We're not doing this for our spiritual self-satisfaction. What we do, we do as unworthy servants for our Lord. You see, you can give to your church, but what's your giving really about? Is it about honoring the Lord and the work he's doing through through the local church to which you belong? Or is it about something else that he that has to do more with you than with him? Is your giving birthed in prayer? 
you know, years ago, and I won't go far into this today, but, you know, I've said this before, but years ago, I had a real sense of conviction as I looked at the scriptures that, you know, the concept of the, the tithe was an Old Testament concept. The New Testament's about free will offerings, you know, and as, as I began to share that over a series of a couple of weeks, I think I was in Corinthians at the time. If any guys ever want to hear it, you know, we can pull it up for you and get it for you. But, you know, I just went through it and logically went through it. And then at the end, I was talking about what the right attitude in giving is, why we give and why we do these things. But, you know, as I was going through this and I was thinking about these things, you know, one of the things I had a number of people say is, well, boy, we're going to be in a lot of trouble now. You know, how are we going to pay the bills? And I'm like, well, we've never depended on the people for paying the bills. We've always looked to the Lord for doing that. So we'll just look to the Lord to do that. But the challenge I gave to people was you need to now, this puts an onus on you because you got to pray about what you're doing. You have to pray about it. You know, I remember I, it's one of the reasons I hate, be honest with you, I hate passing the plates in churches. I just do. And part of the reason I dislike it is because I found myself just in a habit of reaching in my pocket and throwing whatever I had in my pocket and throwing it in the plate as it went by. There was no thought. There was no prayer. There was no consideration. There was nothing. And that's not a push to say it ought to be a bigger amount. It's not necessarily that. It's about what the Lord tells you to do. But are you seeking the Lord or are you just checking a block? Are you just checking a block? You know, and I think that's the heart of this thing. The Pharisees were all about block checking. Everything they did was about checking blocks, the the keeping of rituals, the reason they kept the rituals, and then the self-satisfaction that they got from it, and then the portrayal that they gave to others. I hope this is making sense to you guys this morning. Because I think this is really important. And, and as we look at this guy, again, we don't know his motivation, but based on the pattern of the Pharisees in general and the interaction that's going to develop at this dinner, it's reasonably safe to assume that his motivations are not as pure as might, as he might have been trying to convince Jesus by opening his doors for the poor to come in. Now, with that said, we can't account for Simon's motivations, can we? But whose motivations can we account for? Our own right? We're accountable. And here's the bottom line. Jesus is not impressed with false piety. He's just not impressed with it at all. But back to this account. Who is this woman? We don't know because it doesn't tell us. Now, now some have speculated that it was Mary Magdalene because she was a sinner, right? Delivered of demons and, and, and lots of connections there. And, and I know a lot of movies that are made about Jesus depict her as being the one doing this, but we have no evidence of this at all. She's unnamed. And usually when I find that in the scriptures, I like to leave it there. There's a reason, because she's a face of a lot of different people. You see, she's just a face in the crowd that's being highlighted for this specific point that Jesus is trying to make. Now, we do have a similar account to this account given to us in John chapter 12 and verse 3, where a woman named Mary, but that's Mary of Bethany, anoints Jesus' feet with oil, but it's clearly a different setting than this account. That account takes place in Bethany, which is very close to Jerusalem. Here, we're still down in the Galilee region, which is further away, you know, but, but here at, at Bethany involved Lazarus, the same Lazarus who Jesus raised from the dead, and it involved Martha, who, who was helping to serve the dinner, and she's present along with the disciples, including Judas Iscariot, and none of the disciples or Judas are mentioned in this account whatsoever. 
And, and on top of that, that account takes place closer to the end of Jesus's ministry. This one's clearly in the opening year of his ministry. This is occurring early on in his ministry. So it's clearly a similar incident with a lot of parallels, but at the same time, it's a different incident. And so we don't know who this woman was or anything about her except one description given to us of her. She was a sinner who, when she knew that Jesus was dining at Simon's house, she showed up not to get scraps of of food from the table, but she came to anoint Jesus's feet with the fragrant oil because she knew that Jesus had what she really needed. And she came there for that. She was a sinner. Now, there's no specific reference given to the type of sin that she was used involved in. The use of the phrase here, though, does tell us this, that she was more than a sinner in a generic sense. It means that she had a reputation. There was something about her life that had a reputation of sin. Tradition suggests that she was a prostitute, but again, the scripture's silent. It doesn't tell us. She might simply have been a notorious breaker of the law for all that matters, right? She may have been a lawbreaker of the Mosaic law on such a scale. It's like people out there, you know, there's sinners that, well, we're all sinners, right, at heart, but the the world around us, there's sinners in this world, but there are some notorious sinners, and, and they're not all into all kinds of evil stuff. Some of them just despise Christianity and the truths of the gospel so much that they're just antagonistic towards it, and they get a reputation for that. It could very well be that that's the case with her, but regardless of what it was, it is clear that she had a reputation in the community which Simon is well aware of and recognizes. This woman's a sinner. This also reveals her courage and her determination because she shows up regardless, even though she knew what people thought of her, but she didn't care at this moment. She is clearly coming, not for food, but for something that she desperately needs, knowing that it would be found in Jesus. And so she throws care out the window, (laughs) and she throws her reputation aside, and she shows up anyways. I think that's real spiritual determination on her part. But what's even more remarkable is that she doesn't just come wanting to simply meet Jesus, right? She doesn't come just wanting to have a conversation with him, but she comes wanting to worship him. She comes wanting to worship him. She comes to the house bringing an alabaster jar containing fragrant oil, we're told, which she then uses along with the tears that she's crying, she's weeping. By the way, that's a difference here in this account from the one where Mary uh, anoints Jesus' feet. She's not weeping, no indication of it. This woman's weeping here in this account. And she anoints it with this oil and her tears, and then she wipes you know, uh, this away with, with her hair. And that's truly an act of worship that that we would have a hard time understanding from our cultural perspective today, but not if you understood the culture of her day. You'd get this. You know, first of all, the alabaster jar filled with fragrant oil. Alabaster was this whitish-yellow stone which was named for the town in Egypt from which it originally derived called Alabastron was the town in Egypt in which it was developed. And the fragrant oil that it contained would have been a very luxurious and expensive perfume. Oftentimes used the anointing of burials, right? It could be used as a burial anointing. And in order to get the oil out of the jar, since the jar would typically have been sealed after the oil was placed in it, and it wouldn't have been a cork, it would have been seared shut, the neck of the jar would have had to be broken off so that the oil could then be poured out. Now, 
here's where the context gets really interesting. You see, women often carried that vial with perfume in it around their necks on a chain, hanging down close to their heart. It's not huge. It's not giant. It's a small vial. But it'd be hanging down on a chain close to the heart. And the reason they had it there is because typically that would be their future dowry. It would be the, the present that they would present to their husband at marriage. Uh, something precious that they could give. Something expensive. In other words, this would have been this woman's hope chest of sorts for her future life of marriage. But she willingly gives that up. She gives up something that's precious and meaningful to her, something which contained all of her hopes and dreams in order to simply worship Jesus. I got to tell you, that is the heart of a true worshiper of God. That's the heart of a true worshiper of God. A true worshiper of God freely and willingly lets go of things that are valuable to them Let's go of the stuff that they, that they, that they're holding on so tightly to because it, it, it means something to them, but they're willing to let go of that in order to honor the Lord Jesus himself. You know, there is nothing so precious to them personally that they're not willing to part with, to with it, to, to, to find a greater meaning of worship through it, of Jesus. You know, true, true worshipers willingly worship Jesus by offering things that cost them something personally. David recognized that in his own life, didn't he? In 2 Samuel chapter 24, beginning in verse 18 through verse 25, we're told in an account that after the, the plague, as a result of David's wrongly numbering, taking a census of Israel for his own strengthening purposes, to count for strength, right? See what his kingdom looked like. That, that God judged and, and he brought on that plague that, that ravaged through. But, but here's what happens on the back end of it. Second Samuel 24, verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of God, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Aruna went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Aruna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O King Aruna, has given to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. And the king said to Aruna, Now listen, then the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. This is the heart of worship. I'll offer nothing to the Lord that won't cost me something. You see, David understood this, and so did this sinful woman. But what about us? Do we get that? You know, sometimes we've made worship about all kinds of things, except things that cost us, you know? What are we willing to let go of? What are we, what are we doing with that alabaster jar and its valuable contents? Whatever that is for you. What are you willing to do with it that you're keeping so close to your heart for you? Are you willing to, to let go of it or are you clinging to it for yourself? See, Jesus would say, worship me with it. 
Nothing that you possess is more valuable than your worship of me. Hmm. Well, second, she's using her hair. This might seem weird to us, and, and, but there's a real importance to this. She's using her hair to wipe Jesus' feet. Culturally, for a Jewish woman to have let her hair down in public would have been completely improper. They didn't do it. They wouldn't let their hair down. And yet this woman has little concern for what's socially appropriate at this moment. She could care less. All she cares about is worshiping Jesus, and, and she's giving herself completely over to doing just that, regardless of whether her actions were considered proper or not. And I, again, would just say to you guys, oh, that we, oh, that we would possess that same heart of worship, that uh, a heart that's less concerned with what people think is acceptable and appropriate and far more concerned with simply worshiping Jesus as fully as we can. There are Christians who get all bothered when they see somebody raise their hands in worship. You know, I know we're not singing a lot right now, but you know what? Just telling you, it's just, it's like something about it. It's like, I don't, you know, I don't know if I want to let people see me with my hands up in the air. I always say to people, would you go to a ball game and scream with your hands up in the air? Why wouldn't you do that for Jesus? And it's not a mandate that you have to do that. It's not a mandate that you have to. But if you want to, why wouldn't you? And what about those that would look and judge you because you do? You see, it shouldn't matter. You know, or, or how about people are more are so concerned with analyzing the words that people use in their prayers? You know, one of the things I have learned over 19 years, maybe it's typical to this area, I don't know what it is, but when we do prayer meetings, people are afraid to pray. And one of the things I found in talking to people, part of the reason they're afraid of praying is because they're afraid they're not going to say the right things. And my question always is, well, who is it that you think is in this group that's judging you for your words? Tell me, because if they are, I want to have a chat with them, right? Point them out. Tell me. Drat on them. No, there's not. And the answer would be there's not. But we've grown up that way because people do that, right? People judge us. It's not eloquent enough. It doesn't sound churchy enough. It doesn't sound spiritual enough. You said something wrong. Think about the people that gather around Jesus. These were not educated men and women, right? He didn't care. He was looking at their hearts. And, and that we should be less concerned with what the world thinks of us and, and more concerned with what we really want to give to Jesus in our worship, you see. Now, look, I understand, you know, I understand that in our worship of the Lord, we never want to draw attention to ourselves, you know, and I'm, I'm always emphasize that to people, you know, I think it's one of the reasons that we are so balanced here in a lot of ways, you know, uh, that, that, you know, we just don't want to draw attention to ourselves. But there's a difference between worshiping him and drawing attention to yourselves. And you know, the difference. I guarantee if you think about it, you know the difference. A person who stands up on their chair and starts howling in the middle of a service, they may be worshiping Jesus in their own heart, but every head in the place is looking at them, right? And so we know it's not appropriate. At the same time, because you want to raise your hands to the Lord, because you want to sing to the Lord, because you want to praise the Lord, that is not, that is not attention-seeking. That's to give to him. You should be less concerned with what people think of you. Be careful of this kind of self-regulating, self-righteous rulemaking. Be careful of it. While we most certainly should, again, not do things that draw attention to us, we want to give attention to Jesus. We also should not be constrained in our worship of him. Amen? And so this woman cares less about what was socially acceptable so far as the her worship of Jesus was concerned. She just wanted to honor him, as should we. But even more than just throwing aside social propriety, this woman's act with her hair had to do with something far deeper. You see, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 15 that a woman's hair was her glory. 
that a woman's hair is her glory. And, and, and so by the simple act of letting down her hair and using it to wipe the dirt from Jesus's feet and to anoint him with, with this oil, this was symbolically laying, she was symbolically laying down her own glory in order to do what? To glorify Jesus. That's worship. The willingness to lay down our own glory in order to glorify Jesus. That should be our heart. And here's the awesome thing about when we do that. When we set our glory aside for the sake of his, here's the awesome thing. When we do that like that woman is doing and we lay that down for him, we end up taking on the very same fragrance of the one that we're anointing and glorifying. Just as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Where do you think that fragrance comes from? It comes from our worship of him. When we set ourselves aside and we begin to worship Jesus, we take on his fragrance and we then become that aromatic flavor to the world of Jesus, not of us, you see. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.